All right, today is Sunday. And what is coming on Tuesday? <laughs> Somebody goes, ah, yeah. We ha- there's something happening. It's really big in the United States. It's election day on, on Tuesday. And so I just want to take a moment. Um, I want to take a moment to pray pastorally uh, for all of us as we engage as citizens of our country. Uh, and I, and I want to just say something kind of upfront that's like really framing um, how I'm praying here. Um, primarily, so it, it could go a few different ways. We know that your your man could get in, get the nod. Your man um, might not get in or or get the nod. Your team, whoever whoever you're really uh, looking to for leadership in this company, or, or in this country rather, are. Our responsibility as followers of Jesus is first and foremost to honor him in how we vote, how we engage, and how we respond to those who we may see as political opponents. There's a purpose of politics in the United States, and as we kind of drill down and understand what, why politics even exist, politics is a means Ultimately, as Christians, this is how I think we should see it as Christians. Politics is a means to love and to serve your neighbor. That's what policies are about. They're for the good of the people of this land. And so as we engage, whoever gets the nod on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or whenever, it's kind of all like it all shakes out. Um, I want to encourage us, church, to engage first as citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, not as Republicans, not as Democrats, liberals, conservatives, wherever you fall on the spectrum. So I just want to take a moment and I want to pray. Um, and, I, and I hope that your posture as well is one of openness um, and loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ above all. Father, um, we are citizens of the kingdom and we also find ourselves, our, ourselves citizens of this country, the United States of America. And I, and I believe many of us are grateful for this country. We're grateful for much of its history. Uh, there, there is uh, repentance before you uh, for ways that, that, that we have failed uh, your kingdom as citizens of this country. And so would you hold your people accountable? <clears throat> as we lean into the voting booth, maybe we already have by mail or maybe we do on Tuesday, uh, would you, Holy Spirit, shape us to love our neighbors and to love our enemies? to be first faithful citizens of your kingdom who want nothing more or who want most to see your great name extolled among the people of this land. And there are leaders in play and leaders who potentially could come into play in this country that I ask, Father, both sides of the coin that you would draw to repentance, you draw into deep humility Father, equip your people to love you and to serve you and to serve one another in this country. Would you have mercy on our land? Mercy on our leaders? Mercy on us. Empower us to live as citizens of the kingdom before we consider ourselves citizens of an earthly kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. It feels so hard to to, to pray for uh, something with uh, implications um, like our, our country just finds ourselves in incredible division. That's all I'm going to say. I, I just like if if there is going to be healing in this nation, who's it going to come from? Is it going to come from the people of God moving across the aisle? I don't think we should be looking to the world to do what the church's role is. So what does it look like for you to love your friends and to love those you consider ideological opponents or opposites? That's all I'll say. Uh, Church, I love you. We're getting into God's word. I love God's word. Uh, I'm excited to be in Matthew's gospel, chapter four. This is kind of a a heady, um, weighty, 
portion of the scriptures. Um, This is where Jesus moves out into the wilderness to be tempted by uh, Satan. And there are some uh, very particular things that are, uh, that are coming to play and that are in our view in this passage. So we've got really big themes in this passage. We've got, um, we're not going to be able to go deep on all of them. Uh, we're only going to go deep on a couple. Uh, but I want to just point out what's at play in this passage because in just 11 verses, we have like mega themes happening here. We have, um, we have uh, temptation, the subject of temptation and testing. Um, How does temptation come to us? How does testing come to us? What are their purposes? Uh, We have uh, the question of Jesus's authority and his identity as God's son being brought into play here. We have the Holy Spirit's role in Jesus's life uh, here and his ministry and the fulfillment of his ministry. And by implication, the Holy Spirit now rests upon Jesus's people. And so there are things to know about the Holy Spirit's way in a Christian's life. Now we have the subject of the author of evil, uh, the tempter or the devil or Satan, as this passage uh, calls him. Uh, We have spiritual disciplines, in play here, fasting, where Jesus goes into the wilderness to fast from food for 40 days and nights. We also have the discipline of solitude and silence as Jesus is alone, uh, led by the Holy Spirit, but no other human uh, compadres with him. Here he is isolated as he confronts Satan and Satan confronts him. We have the reality of ministering and serving angels. So angelic beings coming and providing for Jesus here. And we also see the authority, we see the interpretation and we see the purpose of God's holy word in this passage as well. So there's a lot going on here. Uh, It's been really helpful for me to think of and to to really discover that Matthew's gospel is uh, one, not just of a linear progression, meaning it tells the story from his birth to uh, to his death and resurrection and ascension, but it's also, Matthew's gospel is also, um, embedded their themes, like really deep themes. So it, it, it runs along a linear line, a storyline, but there are also themes and layers embedded here. And so my hope for you this morning is to kind of peel back a few more layers of this onion, so to speak, and show us, um, show you, help you see how Matthew is not just some like kind of backwoods, ancient biographical writer, former trader, tax collector to his people, but this is a theological masterpiece. There are themes embedded here that I have never seen in 42 years of living with uh, a local church and, and studying and, and, and being, um, being exposed to God's holy word. I'm seeing them for the very first time in my life, and it's really, really, really exciting. So, Where we're going to start is on the characters at play here. I'll read the text. Uh, The characters at play uh, are Christ, the devil, and the Holy Spirit. And then from there, we're going to get into the temptation of Jesus in these three movements. Satan kind of comes to him with three, like, three themes of temptation here. So let's read God's word. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, notice the capital S there, the Holy Spirit, into the wilderness to be, purpose, to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he, Jesus, was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he, Jesus, answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, that is Jerusalem, and set Jesus on the pinnacle of the temple. This temple was a very high uh, structure, about 180 feet in height. This is likely a vision here. And said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, throw yourself off. For it is written, he, God, the father will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they'll bear or hold you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. He'll save you. He'll come to your rescue. Throw yourself off. Verse seven, Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the third time here, the devil took him, Jesus, to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone. 
Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him, to Jesus. This is God's word. Question. Does the Spirit of God lead Jesus toward temptation? Trick question. Does he, according to this text, he leads him to a place where he will be tempted? Think about this. What did the Holy Spirit, uh, what did he do right after Jesus' baptism? This text says that the Spirit, then Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for a purpose. And what was the purpose? It was to be tempted. He knew what he was doing here. Mark's gospel in Mark 1-2 says that the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. It's got this language of like sudden, compulsive, hardcore, like, here's what we're doing. Are you ready? Luke's gospel in Luke 4.1 says that Jesus, right after his baptism, full of the Holy Spirit, so filled with the empowering presence of the Spirit of God, was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted. So these, these accounts surprise us a little bit. They show us that the Spirit of God is free, not only to lead us toward good, but also to lead us toward, to lead us to face hard things as well. This messes with a bit of our pop theology. It messes with bookstore, like front Christian bookstore offerings. It messes with what you find on TV, not YouTube, but like network TV from these prosperity preachers. It messes a bit with our notions. Like the, what we see here is the Spirit of God is free to lead us to face hard things. Now, the word that Matthew uses for temptation here is a word. It's, it's the word parazo, which can mean test. It can be translated testing when God is in the forefront. But it can also mean temptation when the devil is in the forefront here. Uh, James, a man who is Jesus's brother, uh, he helps us understand this relationship and God's role in testing versus temptation. Uh, and his word is really clear for us about who does the tempting and who does the testing. James chapter 1 verses 12 through 15, um, he writes this, blessed is the man or blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the Test, that's a different word than temptation. That's the word dokumazo. It, it means testing um, for approval. When a person has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, that's the word parazo, I'm being tempted, parazo, by God. For God cannot himself be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. He's not the one bringing the temptation, but he may be the one leading us to face it and strengthening us to face it. James goes on to say, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then that desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So temptation versus testing. Um, testing has a purpose that's meant to bring us in. It's meant um, to strengthen us, but temptation is meant to stumble us. Temptation has a purpose to put us out. Testing, purpose of approval and bringing in and strengthening. Temptation has its purpose putting us out and isolating us and failing us, essentially. So we see the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, in verse 1 of chapter 4 here, leading the Son of God. The Spirit of God leads the Son of God to face the enemy of God, and they will interact in large part through the Word of God. They will use the Word of God with one another. Um, the a temptation of testing, uh, or, or rather like the relationship of Temptation and testing. Like, what is the purpose? What is the purpose of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 4? Is his purpose to be tempted or is his purpose to be tested? 
Mm-hmm. Both. He's going to be confronted by Satan to try to get him to fail, just like the first Adam. But he's also being tested by the Father for the purpose of approval and strengthening here. It's hard for us to get our minds around a bit. James, again, going back to James' letter in your New Testament, the brother of Jesus, in James 1, 2 through 4, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials or temptations of various kinds. For you know that the testing, not temptation, but the testing of your faith, it produces something in us. It produces steadfastness. And James says, and let let steadfastness have or bring about its full effect, that you may be perfect, that you may be complete, that you may be lacking nothing, nothing of what you need. So in this account here, Jesus, uh, he is driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, and he is very much lacking something. What's he lacking over 40 days? He's lacking food. He's weakened by hunger. Fasting for 40 days, it's totally possible. Uh, Some people have died in as soon as 26 days from fasting from food, but many have been accounted uh, to fast longer than 40 days physically from food. Um, The purpose of a distinctly Christian fast, a spiritual fast, it's, it's first and foremost spiritual, meant to foster dependence and meant to foster intimacy with God. Fasting from food brings us face to face with our many needs. It reveals our humanity. Uh, It tests and strengthens our faith, and God honors fasting. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 will command fasting from food. When you fast, not if, when you fast, His uh, experience with fasting brought him face to face with his humanity. Jesus is simultaneously God and man here. And so at this extreme moment of extreme hunger, Jesus is isolated in the wilderness, and here comes the opportunist. Here comes who Matthew calls us the tempter. Uh, Matthew will refer to Satan or the devil or the tempter a total of six times in just these 11 verses. He'll call him the devil four times. He'll call him Satan one time, and he'll call him the tempter one time as well. And there's a whole theology of evil uh, to be developed and explored. Uh, It's origin, it's effect on the world around us. And in 40 minutes this morning, there is not a chance that we can begin to really develop a full orb theology of evil and sin and Satan. But I do want to say a few things. Uh, Matthew and Jesus are both answering a question for us in this text uh, that may be silently uh, just kind of swirling in our minds. Maybe it's quiet in our minds. And, and the question is this, does the devil really exist? Is there a being who exists, a, a real person, a real spiritual person who is opposed to God and opposed to us? The working understanding in the Bible is that evil and Satan absolutely exist. Satan is an actual being who opposes Jesus, and he is not an allegorical figure who kind of represents all that's wrong in the world. Satan is not an idea, though he brings forward ideas, but he is an actual being. That's the position that the Bible takes. Um, The Bible represents this serpent-like figure as the real mastermind behind all of the real corruption in God's creation. He's primarily a destroyer, and he's primarily a splitter or a divider. He means to get in between and to bring division. Now, a question I started to ask and that I found that the commentators were asking and we're probably asking as well is, where did Matthew get this story? Have you ever considered that question? Like, where did Matthew get this story? Think about it. 
There are only three players in the actual moment of temptation in the wilderness. There's the Christ, the Spirit, and the devil. And so it's likely, the Bible doesn't actually tell us where Matthew got the story, but Matthew lived alongside in real relationship, traveling along with Jesus over the course of three years. And it's likely that there were campfire times where Jesus is just relaying the reality of how the world operates and the reality of his own experiences in the world. And so it's very likely that the source of this story is Jesus himself. Imagine being standing around that fire pit as he's telling that story, this story that we're reading right here. Um, Satan is not an actual name. It's actually a Hebrew title, and it means adversary. Satan is not his real name. Satan is a, a title, meaning adversary. Um, Matthew will name, call him the devil four times here, which comes from the Greek word diabolos, which sounds like what? Diabolical. And, and, uh, and it means slanderer or accuser. He'll also call him tempter as well in this passage, which is really straightforward and just right on the nose of, of what, he, what he does. Um, when we put all of these things together, adversary, opponent, slanderer, accuser, divider. Um, we, uh, we, we know a few things. We know the devil speaks. Um, he's an adversary who slanders Jesus, who slanders God, who slanders his people, uh, who accuses, who tempts, who plants doubts in this passage about Jesus's identity uh, and, and plants doubts as well about the goodness of God. Um, Here's a question just for application in our own, um, in our own life and in our own experience. Um, maybe not a question, more of a statement. Um, the questioning of your own identity as a daughter or as a son of God is one of the primary means that Satan uses to bring harm your way. He is consistently at work in your ear, in your spirit, around you through various means and ways that are available to him to cause you to come to a place of doubting your position before the Father because of the Son through the Holy Spirit. So we're asking things like, am I really saved? Am I really a daughter of God? Am I really a son of God? Does he really call me beloved? Does he really want me? Did God really say? It's not wrong for us to ask these questions. It's wrong for us to believe the answers to them that are contrary to what God says about you through your word and through his spirit. Um, Frederick Dale Bruner, he says, we're permitted by this text to believe that the devil operates mainly with words. So he operates by suggestion and argument, by introducing ideas, introducing thoughts and possibilities into the mind. He, Satan, exists and works in history, especially against the purposes and the people of God with a special aim of splitting people off from God, splitting people off from one another. Now, something that's uh, interesting to me as I'm just exploring like uh, who the devil is, how he operates over the course of history and in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible is the devil's origin so story explicitly stated. You may have heard it taught that, you know, he, he fell from heaven and you've heard it taught out of Isaiah 14 or out of Ezekiel 28. But at best, those are allegorical passages that may refer to him. But commentators are very de uh, divided on if these are actual allegories of Satan himself. They speak of the king of Tyre and the king of Babylon and the kingdom of, Ty of Tyre and the kingdom of Babylon. But we don't know for sure that these are actually origin stories for Satan now. If the, if the Bible doesn't present us with an origin story for Satan and for how uh, evil came up in the world, it's a problem for Westerners. It's a problem um, for us. Why? Because in our, in our mindset and in our way of thinking, we do not like informational gaps. 
We like our information to be tidy. We like for things to be buttoned up. We, we think in a, as Westerners, influenced by the Greeks, we think um, very linearly. Point A leads to point B, leads to C, D, E, F, all the way to Z. We like logic. We like systematics. We value details. We do not like unresolved tension. Think about Hollywood. Hollywood is consistently resolving the tension in their 90 or 120 minute epics. And we feel ourselves frustrated and mad. They're good films and they really left us hanging, but there's something about them that that frustrate us. The Bible is not a Western collection of writings. The Bible is an Eastern collection of writings. The human origins of the Bible come from an Eastern mindset who don't think or write like Westerners. They don't typically focus on specifics, but they focus on the big picture and they come at it from multiple angles. They're not interested in tidying up all of the information. They're interested in giving a true view of what is really at stake and what is really happening. And so the Bible teaches us the ways of Satan and his modes and how he operates in the world, but it doesn't answer all of the questions about where he came from. In Genesis uh, chapter 3, we can see that. Like, God has created uh, the world. He's created humanity. He said it's good, 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 very good. And then uh, Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 says verbatim, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He just, on the scene, shows up out of nowhere. And he says to the woman, first words out of his mouth, did God actually say his first, his first move is to tempt. His first move is to undermine with words, to initiate doubt, to split and divide Adam and Eve off from their relationship and communion with God, off between one another, because what do they do immediately? It was her. It was him. It was the serpent. They just start blaming one another and dividing um, from one another. Now, I told you that Matthew is not a linear story only, but it actually has layers, a bit like an onion. Um, this is one of those layers. Are you ready? Uh, you ready? ready? Okay. You sure? Tracy is ready. Nobody else apparently is ready. Um, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Satan successfully undermined Adam and Eve in a garden on their home turf where they had all of the food-bearing trees and plants for their good, where they had communion with God, where they had companionship with one another. Now he comes to tempt a solitary, empty-bellied Jesus who is alone in the wilderness, who will succeed. The Bible commonly refers to Jesus as, or, or rather the Apostle Paul, and specifically in Romans chapter 5 and 6, refers to Jesus as the second Adam. Jesus is the one who has come to remake creation, to reestablish creation, to return creation, to relationship with the Father, and ultimately glory. And so Matthew is laying before us that Jesus is facing a similar temptation as our first parents but he is going to succeed as the story will tell. Let's look at this tempter's interaction with Jesus. So I'm gonna take this in, uh, in three movements, temptation one, temptation two, and temptation three. Um, Satan comes to Jesus and he says right out of the gates, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered, it's written, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter eight here. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Uh, this is a test of self-proving. This is a, tels- a test of self-providing. Will Jesus assert himself and provide for himself, or will he trust his Father? Will he trust the Spirit who has led him out here? He's hungry. Forty days, no food. The Son of God, he's not exempt from the limitations brought about by human physical weakness. His hunger has exposed his weakness. And we know from um, his later miracles that he could have made himself lunch in a moment. He could have just provided for himself. But he chose not to. Here, 
He chose to actually forego that temptation and say, man doesn't live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Notice the the tempter's first words as he just kind of slimes his way onto the scene right here. He's trying to stumble Jesus. He's trying to take advantage of Jesus. And commentators are kind of split on what the first word here actually is. is. Is Satan saying, if you are the son of God, or is Satan saying, since you are the son of God? They could translate it either way. If you're the son of God, brings about a question of Jesus's identity. Since you're the son of God, compels Jesus to do something in light of his deity or in light of his his position within God's family. So if Satan is saying, if you're the son of God, it's initiating a doubt around identity. Now, think about right before Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, what occurred? What occurred with John the Baptist? Yep, the spirit of God in the form of a dove descends on, or like a dove descends on Jesus. The heavens open and who speaks? The father, and what does he say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If you're the son of God, if that's what Satan is saying there, he's trying right out of the gates to get Jesus to question his identity. But if he's saying, since you're the son of God, it could be used to provoke Jesus to use his sonship in order to serve himself. You're hungry. You're weak. It's no big deal. You're the son of God. Use your sonship. Serve yourself. How often does that thought occur to you in weakness? It'll be fine. (laughs) I'll just do it this one time. It sets a dangerous precedent for us. Moments of weakness for us are particular moments when the enemy of God and the enemy of our souls comes after us. Here's something to know about yourself. There's an acronym, HALT. Stands for hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. How often... Do you give in? How often is your humanity and weakness revealed and used to exploit by Satan something in you, a desire in you that's been brought about, moments of hunger? How wicked are you to the people around you? The words that you say, don't just look straight ahead. Don't like do the elbow thing. When you're angry, like, man, we say things that... 30 minutes or three days later, we come back and say, I should not, I was so mad. I couldn't see straight or think straight. Or moments of extreme loneliness. We, 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 we break our integrity. Moments when we're tired, we just keep multiplying harm. There's a lot that can be said there. You can do the work. Uh, Jesus responds to Satan here with the words of Scripture in his mouth. He says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's quoting out of Deuteronomy 8, 3 here. He didn't defend from his intellect. He didn't answer from his emotions. He stood on the Scriptures. The Word of God governed Jesus Christ. In a moment of extreme weakness, God's Word governed him. Everything Jesus answers in response to Satan in this passage today, it comes out of Deuteronomy chapter chapters 6, 7, and 8. Remember, Matthew's uh, his gospel, this is not just a chronological biography, but it is this layered theological tour de force that is showing us how Jesus succeeds where everyone else fails. It's the story of Yeshua. It's the story of God saves. You shall name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. You should call him Emmanuel because he is God with us. Are you ready for another layer? There's another layer to this story uh, around Moses, not, at, not just Adam, but around how Jesus is likened to Moses here. Look at these parallels or consider if you're familiar with the biblical storyline or you're familiar with Genesis and Exodus, um, consider these parallels between Moses and Jesus here. Moses, as he leads the people out of Egypt, he passes through waters. He passes through the Red Sea right before 
leading the people of Israel. Israel is known and referred to in the Old Testament as God's son. Right before he leads God's son for 40 years in the wilderness, right before Jesus' temptation here, he is led through the waters of baptism where he is called God's son and the spirit of God leads him out into the wilderness to fast and be tested over the course of 40 days. Moses, right before going up on this mountain called Sinai to, uh, to receive the law from God and proclaim it to the people, he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. He does so on two occasions. Right before the Sermon on the Mount, right before Jesus goes up on the mountain and sits down and proclaims the new way of the kingdom, he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights here. 40 is a period, it's a time period, it's a number of testing uh, in the Bible. It most often represents a period of testing. So Jesus, uh, Matthew is, is, is laying before his Jewish audience how, how Jesus is the new Moses who will not lead Israel only, but who will lead people from every tribe and language and nation into the reality and into the blessing of a new kingdom, a new reality. When Jesus answers Satan here, it's the story of Moses. It's the story of Moses leading Israel in the wilderness that Jesus recalls from. So go in your Old Testament, if you would. Um, turn all the way to the back. You'll see Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8, if you would. We're just going to read uh, six verses in Deuteronomy chapter 8, where a few uh, things that Jesus says here come out. You'll recognize this. So this is Moses writing in Deuteronomy chapter 8, and he is, uh, he's saying this. The whole commandment that I command you today, Israel, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land, the, the promised land, that the Lord swore or promised to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. There was a purpose that he might humble you, testing you, who's leading Jesus in the wilderness. Spirit, testing, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he, God, humbled you, Israel, and let you hunger and fed you with manna, that is a, a bread that God provided from heaven, which you did not know. This is a new thing, a new miracle, nor did your fathers know, that he, God, might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Israel, your clothing didn't wear out on you. Your foot didn't swell those 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. Israel would fail this test in the wilderness and they would, they would do so miserably on a number of occasions. But Jesus would pass the test in the wilderness, relying completely on the presence of the Spirit, relying completely on the promises of his Father. He would keep the commandments to love the Lord as God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love his neighbor as himself. Where Adam failed, where Israel failed in the Old Testament, Jesus succeeds in perfection. There's a layer. Temptation number two, Satan comes to Jesus in Matthew chapter four here. He comes to Jesus and he says, if you're the son of God or since you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he'll command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they'll hold you up or bear you up lest you strike your foot and harm yourself against a, phone, against a stone. You're not going to come to any harm if you'll just toss yourself off of the temple mount. This is a test of self-protection. This is a taunt from Satan to Jesus to display his authority. Satan says, angels are going to take care of you. You just go ahead and do it. You'll be fine. They will hold you up. And what we see in this passage, Matthew wants us to see in verse 11, is that angels indeed will take care of Jesus, but they'll do so at the Father's command. They'll not do so at the Son's command. So Jesus entrusts himself to the care of his 
Father here. Now, in the first temptation, Satan aimed at Jesus' weakness as he's hungry. At the second temptation, Satan is coming to Jesus in a place of Jesus' strength because Jesus has answered back to him. It's written, and Jesus quotes from the story of Israel and from the Hebrew Old Testament, from the word of God. And so Satan says, ah, I can match you on that. It is written. Notice Satan's words. It is written in verse six. He'll command his angels concerning you. They'll bear you up. You won't even hurt your toe on a rock. Do it. Uh, I think of, uh, I think of like, I think of athletes who, um, our, our, our strengths can oftentimes be exploited and turned into weaknesses. Think of high-level athletes who just hear in their ear all the time, you're God's gift to your sport, you're God's gift to this team, you're God's gift, God's gift, God's gift, God's gift. And then what happens is the arrogance just really embeds itself in their soul. That, that, that strength ends up being exploited somewhere along the way, and pride always comes before a fall. So Satan is coming to Jesus on a strong point here. He's quoting Bible to Jesus. He's like, okay, if you want to tangle on the word of God, I'll tangle on the word of God. Uh, He quotes from Psalm 91. And what he's doing is twisting scripture here. Jesus understands that Satan's not using scripture in context. Psalm 91, it's a song of God's protection. It's It's a song of God's protection in the face of wicked enemies. So God is saying to his people, if your enemies come at you, I will command my angels concerning you. I will protect you. But Satan is using this text, using Psalm 91, to try and manipulate Jesus into asserting himself, into putting God to the test and into making Psalm 91 mean something that it doesn't mean. Because Jesus has just said, I live by every word that proceeds from God's mouth. Satan essentially says, okay, then God's word says this, toss yourself off, prove it. Throw yourself down from the temple mount. It's approximately 180 feet in height here. This is a bit on a moment, a bit like the moment on a playground when a, a bully, you know, trips you up and then goads you to hit him. Hit me, hit me, hit me. But he's too cowardly to actually do the work himself. Jesus is not going to fall for the tempters, the bullies bait in this moment. And so he responds, no, no, no. That's a twisting of God's word. It is written, you shall not put your, the Lord your God to the test. Satan twists scripture here, but Jesus believes and rightly interprets it. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 6.16, where Israel, where the people of God, they put God to the test. God has just provided them as, as, as Moses is leading the people. They're wandering in the wilderness. God has led them by a pillar of smoke by day, a pillar of fire by night. He's revealing himself to Moses. He's giving the law. He's providing food for them from heaven. And they go out to this place uh, where there is, is no water. And they begin to be parched from thirst. And Moses in Deuteronomy 6 recounts how these people are just coming at him viciously. It's like they are going to totally um, mutinize and overthrow Moses. And he says at one point, I feel like these people are going to stone me. God, what do you want me to do? And God instructs him to go and to provide water from a rock to strike his staff on a stone and out of this stone, God would again miraculously provide drink for the Israelite people. But the Israelite people, um, in all of their grumbling, they say, um, and you can see this in Deuteronomy chapter six, is the Lord with us or isn't he? Is he with us or or isn't he? But what has just occurred? They've just been led out of slavery in Egypt, across the Red Sea, on dry land. God has been providing for them visibly. He's been providing for them physically as well. How often do we put God to the test with similar attitudes? We've seen him at work in our histories, our individual histories. We've seen how he's been with us. We've seen how he's provided for us. It probably didn't come in all the ways you would have wanted it to or expected that it would. But nonetheless, as we look back on our histories, many of us can recall with great detail how God has been there for us. And yet when the new trial, the new temptation comes, hearts are quick to do what? Where are you? Are you here or not? I don't even know if I can trust you. 
You can see the propensity for our own hearts to just forget. We're so inclined to forget, and yet he continues to faithfully draw us back in his goodness and his mercy. He does so with gentleness most times. His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. May we not put God to the test with these kinds of attitudes that kind of shake our fist at him, but may we look back at our histories and go, you were with me there, you were with me here, you're with me here, I know you'll be with me here, and be strengthened by his spirit. Okay, temptation number three. Um, Satan comes to Jesus and he says, he shows him the kingdoms of the world. It's probably some sort of a vision. Shows him the glory of the kingdoms of the world. Jesus is about to proclaim the kingdom of heaven here a few times in short succession. Uh, So there's a contrast in, in the kingdoms of men, or as Trevor said a few weeks ago, the empires of men versus the kingdom of God. Satan comes to Jesus and says, bow down and I'll give you all this glory. This is a test here of self-exaltation to Jesus, of of grabbing and gaining and going after the glory that's due him, but too soon and at Satan's request rather than at the Father's dispensing. Satan is appealing to the humanity of Jesus and humanity's desire for glory. I'll give you all these kingdoms if you'll bow the knee and if you'll worship me. Satan was subverting Jesus in this moment, tempting the king, the coming king, to forfeit his coming crown. And he's about to publicly come out and declare the kingdom that his father, the kingdom of his father is at hand, but Satan offers a cheap trick. And so I'm going to quote from David Platt here at length. It'll be up on the screen. Think about this. Consider this. I'll read it slow. You may be wondering why this would be such a great temptation if Jesus already knew all these kingdoms would be his. But remember, Jesus also knows the road ahead leading to such authority. It's filled with sorrow. It's filled with suffering. It's ultimately filled with a violent death. He was tempted to try and seize God's reward right then, apart from the path of pain. You're a son, the devil said, so why be a servant? You're a king. Why be crucified? Take them now. They're yours. That's precisely what Satan whispers in our ears today. He points to all the things of this world, the successes, the accomplishments, the pleasures, and the possessions, and he says, get them now. They're yours. Get them now. Sacrifice your integrity. It doesn't matter. It's what you most want. It's what you most need. Get it now. Going on to um, Platt's, continuing on in Platt's quote here. He, Satan, promised Adam and Eve they would be like God if they ate the fruit and they believed him. They ascribed worth to Satan instead of worth to God. We're tempted to do the same thing that Adam and Eve did. We're tempted to assert ourselves in the world while we rob God of his worship. How often are you tempted to assert yourself in an ungodly manner? It's constant for me. Pride is at the root of all of my rebellions. Pride is at the root of all of humanity's rebellions. This statement, I deserve. This attitude and emotion of entitlement and deserving. We want our own glory before we want the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. And so we're constantly stepping in front and getting what is ours rather than relying on our Father to provide for us. But Jesus would teach later on in Matthew's gospel in Matthew 23, 12, he'd say, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And so we see in this passage right here that that Jesus keeps in step throughout this entire temptation and testing in the wilderness. He keeps in step moment by moment, step by step, literally with the Holy Spirit who is greater than he who is in the world. And so as those who are believers in Jesus, as those who are disciples and followers of Jesus, he's given us his spirit. His spirit lives within 
lives upon, empowers, calls, teaches, speaks to us and empowers us to follow him and to live by the Spirit. Those are Paul's words in Romans chapter 8. Live, if you live by the Spirit, you will put to deed the desires of the flesh. We live by his lead and he's greater than he who is in the world. So our call as the people of God this morning is to remind ourselves that God provides everything that we need. He provides our physical needs, but he's provided to us something really, really, really unique in history. He's provided the story of redemption. He's provided in Matthew's gospel in particular, the teaching of his son. He's provided the teaching in the scriptures that we do have the Spirit of God who rests upon us and who leads us and who empowers us. And he calls us to worship him, to lean on him, to rely on him. I said this last week, and this is where I'll end. I don't know if you're like me. You probably are and that I think a lot of us are facing similar struggles, but it's hard for me right now to get into and to be into and to sustain myself in God's word. I'm finding like a ton of opposition just within my own heart and my desires. It's like, I, I, I'm hungry for it, but I, but I in moments when um, I can just sense the spirit saying, like, open up Matthew's gospel or, or, or use the dwell app and, and, and just listen to scripture. I'm like finding myself consistently busying myself with things of lesser importance, things that ultimately won't fill me. I just, it's like my attention span is off and my desire center is off. And so I don't, I don't know if that resonates with you in any way, but my word, like Holy Spirit, please, please, please create a desire in your people for your word and correct us. Father, what else do we have but to come to you and to pray and to say, I don't have it, and to thereby begin a process of repentance by saying, my aim is off. Our aim is off. Spirit, there's all kinds of stories in the room too. And you know every one of us and you know them in incredible detail. And so where we... Um, where we don't desire your word, would you supernaturally create a hunger in us for your word? And would you encourage us as we come to it that it nourishes us and that we see how close you are to us? And if there are those in the room who just don't, we just don't know how to approach it. We just feel like every time we come to it, we can't understand it. Would you unlock by your spirit, a simplicity of mind in coming to the scriptures where we begin to be taught? Would you um, connect us with one another to, to open the word and not neglect it? Dinner parties are cool, but what does it look like for the people of God to sit around uh, united by the table, united by food and drink and the ways you provided, but ultimately united by open Bibles in front of us as we scratch our heads and, and, and find ourselves in awe at the truth and the mystery and the wonders contained. Lead us to be a people of your word. Lead me to be a, people, a person of your word. Search our hearts, Holy Spirit. Where we're tempted to walk out of this room with guilt, protect us, Holy Spirit. Protect us from the arrows and the attack of our enemy and your enemy. Set your people on solid ground and strengthen us for the work ahead, the work to which you're calling us for and toward. In Jesus' name, amen.